Welcome to the 6 o'clock news. I'm your anchor, Almazar Lassar Hack. Now it's going to be a little different from Partisan Hack in that it's going to take on a more podcast type of format, and I'm going to be supplying you with five stories that I think uh, you should be paying attention to. The first three are going to be focusing on American politics and, Amer and American news. The fourth one is going to be focusing on world news. And then the fifth one is something kind of kooky and jokey, something straight out of like a conspiracy theory forum, something like, you know, chemtrails, UFO sightings, Pizzagate, did the mob kill Pope John Paul I? So let's get started with the first story of the 6 o'clock news, and that being the publishing of Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury. Sources in the, in the description below. Michael Wolff is a pretty reputable author and journalist, so when his new book, Fire and Fury, came out, it's not surprisingly that a lot of people ate it up, like it's the hot new thing. In fact, it is the hot new thing. But upon further reading it, although I haven't personally read it, I have been meaning to like at least peer through the books, a lot of news stations have been saying that Mr. Wolf's book lacks proper citation, lacks proper corroboration, and thus a lot of them are saying that it should be taken with a grain of salt, and it, it, especially the way that, that Trump is portrayed. But I think it's just believable enough giving the personality of a lot of the people that are in the Trump White House. The fact that Trump goes to bed at 6.30 with a cheeseburger? That's just believable enough, considering his personality. Steve Bannon being sort of almost... Ven I forget the exact wording, but it, it includes pubic venom in him is... Just believable enough considering how he looks and what he did for a living before being the senior counselor to the president That this book has a lot of people divided in terms of like is this really real? Is this true or is this sort of almost allegorical and I think Michael Wolf provides a good enough uh, summation of, of the material of his book on the Colbert report by saying that the book should be taken seriously not literally and I think any journalist would know that certain articles and stories should be looked at with a certain level of skepticism, and certainly that's what I'm going to be looking at when I start reading Fire and Fury to better to sort of understand where this is coming from. And naturally, a lot of Trump supporters and people that work with Trump are, you know, declaring that the president is at full capacity and at full uh, control of his mental devices. You know that. They, they are declaring their unwavering loyalty and unquestionable sanity of the president, with Trump even tweeting that he is a stable genius on Twitter, because apparently, you know, Trump can't be five seconds away from Twitter. Instead of maybe going to bed at 6.30 with a cheeseburger, he should have been going to bed at 6.30 with his phone, tweeting at people who don't like him, like some 14-year-old girl. Oh my god, I can't believe that Becky called me fat. I can't believe that. I, I'm just like blown away that this is apparently becoming the norm of our president, that this is presidential quality. And especially now with his coming out of like calling countries and else, like people that have come from El Salvador and Haiti as shithole countries. Ladies and gentlemen, our president! I'm. I, seriously. Why? If. If Trump gets elected in 2020, I. I don't know what I do with myself. I think I would just be like, "Yep, nope, like, like that Futurama, re like that Futurama meme." I don't want to live on this planet anymore. That I, I just can't believe that, that this is our president. <laughs> but 
let's move on to our, our second article, and that being the candidacy of Congresswoman Martha McSally for the Arizona Senate. Congressman McSally's entrance to the Senate is no big surprise to a lot of people, considering that now Joe Arpiro and Kelly Ward are in the Arizona Senate. The exodus of Arizona Senator Jeff Flake has got the GOP in a bit of a tizzy because they now have no candidate to really, like, back them up on, on, on them, an establishment pick. And Martha McSally was just enough of an establishment pick and enough of, of, a, of a Trump lover to sort of unify those two aspects of the party, considering that what happened in Alabama and uh, what's going on across uh, the nation with people like Danny Tarkinian in Nevada against Dean Heller. The only thing, the only place I see Bannon and McConnell working together is working to help bolster the candidacy of Missouri Atten Attorney General Josh Hawley. But I digress. In Arizona, Jeff Flake has been a very vocal opponent of the president, and I think that's both helped and hurt him in the sense that it's helped him because it, it it's fueling a possibility of a primary challenge in the same way of, like, John Kasich, who is as equally of an opponent of the president and may even try to challenge him in 2020 or uh, run a independent candidacy in 2020, that Senator Flake, I think, is really a conservative mirroring the image of Barry Goldwater. In fact, his one of his books that he published last year uh, echoes the same concept as Senator Goldwater, that of the conscience of a conservative, and I think that's the same title that Jeff Flake uses, but maybe like a word here or two is misplaced. Martha McSally, Kelly Ward, and Joe Arpiro are three wings of the Republican Party, but are still cut from the same cloth. They're all three very right-wing, very against political correctness. It's just kind of like, what are, which one really grabs your attention? Are you somebody that's anti-establishment and favors the president and even has the endorsement of the president? Then your candidate is Kelly Ward. Are you a racist bigot who, with the translation of tough on crime, means F all black people and minorities? Then Joe R. Pyro is your candidate. If you are somebody that's loudmouthed and probably uh, someone that's against political correctness, but just enough that says, you know, maybe the people in Washington make some sense, then Martha McSally is your candidate. Altogether, you get the Three Stooges. At least with the Democrats, there are some people, before Congressman Kirsten Sinema entered uh, for the Democrats, I preferred Deidre Aboud, this Muslim attorney that was running for the Democrats, but with Kirsten Sinema's candidacy, it's going to unfortunately snuff out a lot of uh, the lesser-known candidates. She's moderate enough to probably corral a lot of people that are having buyer's remorse and voter fatigue of the Republican Party to maybe eke out the possibility of a Democratic victory. The split in the anti-establishment uh, vote between Arpiro and Ward might even help out Martha McSally in the, in the long run. If it was either Ward or Arpiro versus McSally, it would spell disaster for McSally because despite the fact that she's trying to run as an anti-establishment candidate, she has the backing of the establishment. That's like a senator saying that he's a Washington outsider because he's been out of the Senate for a good number of years. Like, you still worked in Washington. Like, Congress Congresswoman McSally, you work in Washington. You're a congresswoman in Washington. You have the backing of Senator McConnell and a lot of high-profile Republicans. You are an establishment pick. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Unfortunately, your record as, a, as an Air Force colonel, while admirable, 
may not unfortunately save you, the 2018 Senate election is really just going to be a good opportunity for the Democrats to really pick up a number of seats, typically in like California, New York, and the fact that they're really just acquiescing to the president is not a good thing. Which brings me to my third article, Trump's confusing stance on the issues of DACA. Trump has made DACA and immigration something that has been at the forefront of his platform. You know, build that wall, build that wall. When Mexico sends its best, they only send, they're sending crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people too. You know it's a bad thing when you can memorize that whole speech, or at least paraphrase it. But the issue of DACA has come to the forefront, especially with Trump's stance on it. He tried to show CNN and a lot of the news stations that he hates that he was in power by look by having Democrats and Republicans sit in on uh, on this meeting and even you know trying to show that you know he really is the commander in chief that he is in charge when in actuality he basically looked like he was completely bending to the will of whoever was the loudest. He agreed with Senator Feinstein and House Majority Whip Kevin McCarthy was having to like say, no, no, Mr. President, you do understand what Senator Feinstein is trying to offer. I think Seth Meyers put it best that he's like a crazy grandpa where his kids are trying to get all of them into the will. Okay, that seems like a good idea. No, 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 I want the money. Why? I don't think it'd be fair. This further goes to show you that the president has zero concept of how to be a president. He's used to, you know, ordering people around in a business, but with the president, it's a different atmosphere. It's a different kind of job. Like, at least with a senator or with a governor, they work with people. They work with a, with a, with a head. The governor works with the state legislatures. Senators work with the president of the Senate and work with people in committees and whatever, and they understand political systems. The only political systems that businessmen know are things that happen in their immediate vicinity and that can further their agenda, and that's not how governments work. It's not this bullish tactics where you can get whatever you want in a business. Politics takes a very gradual and very procedural type of position. Trump being a businessman only helps out in the short run, and I think even this isn't helping in the short run. This is only just a protest vote that a lot of people, you know, they, that he tells it like it is, you know, he's honest, he's anti-PC, so I can say, you know, I can call black people derogatory names, I can say this about Jewish people, white power and all the sorts, and what have you to show for that, what have you to gain? We've seen already in Virginia and in Alabama that the Democratic Party is showing some level of resistance. Even in, in congressional districts in Montana, Georgia, Kansas, there are others, but I forget them. But still, like, these were, they were, the Democratic candidate, although lost, was voted pretty close. Like in Montana, despite the fact that Greg John Forte assaulted a reporter, he still won exactly 50% of the vote, whereas Democrat Rob Quist won about 45% of the vote. That's insane, considering that in 2016, Ryan Zink won almost like 60% of the vote. And even in Georgia and in South Carolina, the voting margins were a lot lower, like 3 to 4%. That's amazing. That just goes to show you that regardless of gerrymandering, that Democrats can vote for somebody. And even in Alabama, a state that was notoriously red, voted for its first Democrat since the 90s. I think, to a certain degree... Having businessmen in, in, in the forefront of politics is the natural result. We've had presidents that were, you know, military men, presidents that were lawyers, 
presidents that, you know, worked in humanitarian relief efforts, like Herbert Hoover, um, wasn't completely a businessman. He at least had some type of cabinet-level executive position in the Secretary of Treasury. But he, dif different from Donald Trump, did a lot of humanitarian work during the first World War, and I think if the Great Depression hadn't happened, he would have been a relatively okay president. I think the majority of the Republican Party is in danger with so many incumbents retiring that this brings me to my fourth article of World News, the dysfunctionality of Theresa May and Angela Merkel. With the recent elections that happened in the United Kingdom and in Germany, Chancellor Merkel and Prime Minister May called for snap elections to probably hold on to the vote. Prime Minister May, uh, unfortunately, barely held on to her majority and is attempting a coalition with various minor parties in Parliament, such as uh, the Liberal Democrats and also the Irish Independence Party, and also the issue that Prime Minister May is having to reshuffle her cabinet just further shows that Theresa May isn't exactly in control. I think to a certain degree, even the a wave of liberalism is affecting world politics. We've seen this in the United Kingdom and in Germany, uh, France with the election of Emmanuel Macron against a more right-wing populist candidate. Uh, in South Korea, elected Moon Jae-in, a civil rights attorney and a much more liberal-minded uh, political leader to the forefront. This sort of dysfunctionality also shows that even with the dysfunctionality in America, there's really... the entire world is leaderless. Trump has basically backed out on the Paris Climate Accords, leaving the brunt of leader of... the title of leader of the free world to nobody. Germany's dysfunctional. Britain's dysfunctional. Emmanuel Macron is too young to pretty much step into the shoes of anybody else that there's nobody at the forefront. So this these are pretty scary times because, you know, America has usually been at the forefront, but with Trump's continual childish persona, it's further diminished the reputation that the United States was truly a great country. Like, at least we've had bad presidents, but at the very least, they acted professionally. They, they acted adult-like. This is something so unprecedented that I'm afraid that this might even be the normal, that some level of, like, brutish, brash, and abrasive personality is going to just be the further stereotype of the Americans, that they just don't give a fuck about anybody or anything other than immediately in their surroundings. And that's a shame, because there are plenty of level-headed and mature Americans that only feel further embarrassment well, you know, they're, you know, anti-American libtards. And I try not to take too much of a stance on that thing because what even makes something anti-American? So you don't, you know, you don't sing with your heart out to the national anthem. God forbid you kneel during the national anthem against police brutality because apparently when you kneel at the national anthem, it's a kneeling against America, that you hate America. Wow, I'm turning into some kind of like liberal shock jock. Like the liberal version of Rush Limbaugh. Trump is a zombie and lizard person! Believe me, give me money! But there is a lot of good that, that's happening in America. You know, I like to think of the thing in love, actually, that, you know, there is love around us. It's just that the media sort of, that the media banks off and feeds off of the hate and all the violence that's going on. But I like to keep things on the positive side. But again, what makes something anti-American? Seriously, when you think about it, someone who's someone who 
says something is anti-American, like, oh, you're anti-American because you don't do this, 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 and this. That's kind of prejudiced for you to say that. Like the whole, a lot of these people, you know, the conservatives that think this are pretty, you know, narrow-minded and think that, you know, to be an American, you have to be this. I would think that to be an American, you have to have some level of, you know, maturity and understanding that what the Founding Fathers wanted from America is no longer possible. Even Thomas Jefferson, the most fervent believer in states' rights, basically said F you to the Constitution, sort of found a, a loophole and purchased the Louisiana Purchase in pretty scrupulous type of diplomatic uh, handling. Abe Lincoln brought about executive orders and the handling of the suspension of habeas corpus during the Civil War. Theodore Roosevelt, usage of his executive orders is only further showing that the power of the president is further increasing. Whether that's to a healthy degree is unknown. But I think that to a certain level, you have to understand that there is the checks and balances to prevent a tyrant. Like, a lot of people claim that, you know, like, Obama is a tyrant, you know, he's a socialist, he's trying to make everybody, he's trying to make America just like just like the rest of the world, so says little Marco, my senator from Florida, that he's not trying to make America like the world. He's trying to at least sort of include a lot of things. If what can happen in Europe happen, it can happen in America, but even better. It's just that the Republican Party is so gridlock is not, not even gridlock but just like so in bed with special interest groups that the freedom of enterprise is mask is a big masquerade it's a joke and even democrats that are in in bed with with special interests big pharma and big businesses are just hiding under a masquerade that they're doing something for the good of the country but who knows I mean, that's why we have the democratic process that we can elect people in and out of office that you know shares our similar values whether that's good values or bad values is something that you know further shows that your vote matters if you share in the similar vision as this candidate of your respective party you should be able to at least say hey i have a voice i will have a voice if i vote for this person and i may have a voice in washington i know that i'm speaking in a ter in idyllic terms and the whole get out the vote and you know your vote matters, and the whole lesser of two evils during the 2016 election was very prevalent. I think that's for a different video, either on Partisan Hack or on the 6 o'clock news. It's difficult to say, and uh, I'm, I'm already running out of time in terms of this story. So I just received the last story for the evening, and that is, Noah's Ark remains found buried in Turkey's Mount Ararat, researchers claim. Oh boy. TheInquisitor.com Okay, I think from this article, I have a general idea. I have a very... I have someone who's very conservative and takes the Bible to a certain degree of literal sense that the world was created in seven days, that Adam and Eve were the first human beings. But basically, this is saying that there is a type of rock formation in the Turkish mountains that looks like the shape of an ark. Um... Remember when I said take journalism to a certain level of skepticism? Yeah, I think this is a good time to do that and share the same level of skepticism when you read the Bible. Now, I'm not, not asking you to, do, to, to even follow me, have what I'm saying to a certain level of skepticism. But if Noah's Ark truly did happen, 
where would that water go? Where did that water come from? Like, this is impossible. Um, for them to say that there is a rock formation in the Turkish mountains that proves that Noah's Ark happened... No. 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 I, 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 I can't accept this. This is just... This really is kooky. This is really uh, out there in terms of truth. It's people that say, you know, that they see the Virgin Mary or Jesus Christ in, like, their grilled cheese or, um, you know, their, their lattes or whatever. I'm not really going to get too too much into my religious beliefs. I think that, that that's a certain level of uh, personal information that I don't feel it uh, privy to giving to people. I will say that I am religious to a certain degree. I am I follow the example of the Founding Fathers that religion, especially organized religion, should be looked at with a certain level of skepticism. I guess there's just some like lingering faith that there's something out there. Who knows? I'm more likely to believe in a in Jesus Christ in his ministry than I am to believe in the Noachian flood because for there to exist only two people on earth would mean that the earth would be depopulated after a number of generations and incest and sexually transmitted diseases and defects biological defects would be prevalent amongst us especially if we were born from the same gene pool from two people like you would need at least like a good thousand to ten thousand people populating the earth i'm i will say that i am not a creationist i do hold evolution to a higher regard i think that the bible the the genesis stories uh are a very primitive way in explaining how the world was created but to say that the world was created in seven days exclusively is very short-sighted and very infantile. Like the Greek, a lot of a lot of a lot of religious-based creation stories have a very infantile way of looking at the at the world. It's a quick understanding of how things are formed, and if a quick answer is what you're looking for, then that's fine. But understand that there is a more that there should be, and there sh and there is. A much more complex answer and I think you should at least to understand the whole you should look at all the aspects and not just what's before you well we finished the six o'clock news a little earlier than I expected but well that's you know this is the first episode this is a, a, a test run to under to you know sort of like better synthesize what we're gonna talk about what we're gonna discuss and whatever well I hoped that you were informed on what we talked about here on the six o'clock news i hope that you know you found some newfound intelligence and that you will look at things a little bit more skept skeptically uh until next time i am almazar lasar hack may your oven stay warm and your paintings more beautiful good night <laughs>